mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey guys, wanted you to know today's episode is about psychedelic drugs and our conversation is for educational purposes. Hey guys, it's Candice and Kayla and we are directionally challenged. Yeah, we thought we would have it all figured out by the time we were in our 30s. But surprise, we don't. No, we don't. But Kayla, I have a question for you. Ooh, what? Why did the mushroom go to the party? I have no idea why. Because he was a fun guy. <laughs> That's actually good. I like that joke. <laughs> I've been like so excited to start this conversation off with that joke. Like a <laughs> giant dork. Um, guys, we're going to get super groovy in this podcast episode today. We're going to talk about psychedelics. I sound so old. <laughs> Groovy made you sound a little old, but that I will, t- I will be the first person to say that's not a word you usually use. Um, you guys, we're going to talk about the three big psychedelic drugs today. Candace and I don't know much about them. And when she first brought this topic up as um, an idea for a podcast, I thought this was brilliant because we truly are a little lost in this topic. And so 
We are going to bring on an anthropologist and have a fantastic conversation with her. Um, I know nothing about psychedelic drugs. Candace, did you know anything about this when we started the research for this episode? I mean, I, I have heard of them, you know, uh, the, the name of magic mushrooms have come up in, in topics of conversation. No, we've look, you can find we're also talking about ayahuasca. I feel like you can find people talking about psychedelics everywhere right now, whether it's mainstream TV or news articles. I mean, Goop did a whole thing on microdosing. So it's um, very present in pop culture. Not only is it present in pop culture, but it's really present on our ballots when you're going to vote. Mm-hmm. The movement to decriminalize psilocybin, which is the psychedelic drug produced naturally by magic mushrooms um, in the United States, began in the late 2010s. Denver, Colorado, was actually the first city to decriminalize magic mushrooms in May of 2019. Other cities like Oakland and Santa Cruz and California also followed in Denver's footsteps by decriminalizing magic mushrooms in June of 2019 and in January of 2020. Also, Somerville, Massachusetts, just decriminalized magic mushrooms in January of 2021. And you guys might have heard in November of 2020, the big news of voters in Oregon passing the Oregon ballot measure 109, which made Oregon the first state to both decriminalize magic mushrooms and also legalize them for therapeutic use. So they're kind of everywhere right now, which opened up a whole other conversation between you and I, Kayla, about other psychedelics like ayahuasca and peyote. And we figured we would take this opportunity on the podcast to educate ourselves a little more. Right. And like marijuana before it, psychedelic drugs, uh, once were considered illicit, are now going mainstream. And that's the conversation that we want to have. Will it follow in the footsteps of marijuana? Is it going to take its own course? Um, and what's the future of all of this? So you guys, today we sit down with Dr. Bia Labachi. She's a Brazilian anthropologist. Her main areas of expertise are the study of psychoactive substances, drug policies, shamanism, ritual, and religion. She's the author, co-author, and co co-editor of 17 books, one journal special edition, and several peer-reviewed articles. In 2016, Dr. Bia Labachi also co-founded an online ayahuasca learning hub called Chakruna. It's a venue for publication of high-quality academic short texts on psychedelic plant medicines. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Dr. Bia Labachi. And we're here with Dr. Bia Labachi. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a lot of questions for you about psychedelics. We want to kind of talk about the three main ones, which I'm sure you're going to, you could tell us if there are more, but we want to talk today a little bit about um, what's become known as magic mushrooms or psilocybin. I always pronounce it wrong. Psilocybin mushrooms, (laughs) uh, ayahuasca and peyote and how they've really become quite popular in conversations today. And we are starting to see a lot more um, of these psychedelic drugs on our ballots when it comes to voting. Uh, So first, I want to talk about psilocybin mushrooms. And why do you think right now people are starting to want to see them used in a medicinal way? Why are we seeing them on our ballots today? I think psilocybin has been used, uh, mushrooms have a long tradition of use in the underground in the United States. There's a very strong culture around consuming mushrooms in the U.S. So it's been 
spread in the scene of festivals, but also in like small circles of connoisseurs and enthusiasts and activists and people that are passionate that have been growing mushrooms. And, uh, you know, there is the gourmet and culinary side of it. Then there is the exploration side of it. Uh, there is a scene related to more therapeutic and existential pursuit. So these things have been widespread and are part of culture and have been integrated into our communities. It's not like they're starting to emerge now. Perhaps they're starting to become more popular and visible now, but they have been around for a long time. There is, I, I even attended this whole fair, for example, in the San Francisco Science Museum uh, here in the Bay Area. There's this whole day of Mushroom Day. And of course, it's not just related to, mush to psychedelic mushrooms. There's all kinds of mushrooms. But anyway... It was a fair and you can see like zines and T-shirts and biohackers, all kinds of communities that are interested in this, in this phenomenon. And with the advance of clinical trials and drug reform policy, these movements that were more underground and unknown and discreet and more related to just a few people that know each other start to become more visible. But I wouldn't say there are more you know, people are doing this more now. We're just listening more openly about this now. Now, you talk about the therapeutic side of it and drug reform, and I think that's possibly why we're seeing it on our ballots more often than we have previously. Obviously, Oregon is the first state to legalize magic mushrooms in therapeutic, for therapeutic reasons. Is this something we're going to see more regularly, and will this be equivalent to what we've seen with uh, marijuana and how it's used in therapeutic ways? Well, it's it's always a big, uh, you know, it's it's hard to do this futuristic exercise because we don't know what's going to happen and things are moving very fast. So I'd say that in the last two years is an entirely different scenario than what we've seen before. So it's a bit hard to predict what's going to happen. I can say that I have been studying and observing and doing field work around psychedelics for 24 years. And it's been really overwhelming, the explosion of things on all fields, on all parts of the psychedelic movement. So there's a million new psychedelic businesses emerging, psychedelic apps, and all kinds of professions that are getting interested in psychedelics, psychedelic as a legal career, as chaplains, uh, nurses, and, you know, designers, creators of new uh, technological uh, and virtual reality and intersection with psychedelics. So a lot is happening on different uh, levels of culture. I am uh, chief editor of the MAPS Bulletin, and we're going to host our ne next uh, edition is going to talk about the new psychedelic ecosystem. And we're trying to do a map on what's happening on different areas. So the emergence of multiple cultural uh, magazines and uh, journals that report on psychedelics, but also different grassroots organizations, nonprofit organizations that emerge, different careers, different projects, different initiatives. There's a lot going on. I think that Mushrooms have for sure helped a lot of people, and there is a huge movement of people that have used mushrooms for healing and, and, and therapeutic purposes. 
and these communities are coming together. There's also a strong underground community of growers, uh, like there is with cannabis. A lot of people that exchange tips on how to grow better and how to make the best out of it and combine with other uh, potential substances and so, yes, I think these things are becoming more and more organized and there is less and less stigma and there is more and more progressive reform. And of course, there's also more big money and big pharma eyes on all of this. I feel like the only thing I really know about where magic mushrooms or mushrooms with the psilocybin within them uh, would grow is on top of cow poop. Why do I, why is that something that has been told to me? Is that true? Is that where they come from? Where do magic mushrooms grow? Yeah, they grow out in nature and you you can search for them after the rain. Although, you know, I am a researcher and I'm not really sure if it's my role to give that kind of tip. Uh, but let's just say that they are part of the lovely garden of Mother Nature to to the humans, and they have been used through different times and spaces and cultures. Uh, they have been brought to our attention by Gordon Wasson in the mid-50s when he visited the town of Waltla de Jimenez, where he met the famous uh, Mazatec healer Maria Sabina, who was just one healer among many others. And the Mazatecs are also not the only uh, traditional people that use mushrooms in the sierras of Mexico, in the mountains of uh, near Oaxaca. And that's how kind of uh, we got to know more about uh, mushrooms. But they've also grown in other continents and have other modalities of use. In our conference that we're hosting, the Chikrana Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines, we're going to host a panel about fly agaric mushrooms and it's talking about all of this phenomena and you know there's a whole movement in Siberia and also in in Europe other traditions of use of mushrooms so it's a vast territory and there's many different um, branches and and ways of using it and what I what I am particularly amazed is how this is also part of the U.S. culture because there is a tendency to say, oh, these things are, you know, a magic ancient tradition from the Americas or from Siberia. But there is also a strong, perhaps you couldn't say traditional, but there is a strong community and history of views within the U.S. itself. And I think that it is this culture that is kind of emerging now and helping uh, move and advance this movement of re drug reform that is really urgent and due. What for when you mentioned the therapeutic and spiritual use um, historically for mushrooms, what were these practices like? What was what was the goal from consuming these mushrooms historically? Yeah, it's a little bit uh, like hard to just summarize the goals because it's part of uh, traditional roots. So I am an anthropologist and I have studied and looked at the traditional roots of plant medicine and shamanism for indigenous people, it's very related to the whole dimensions of society. So uh, we can't separate the spheres so easily like we do and say, here is the religion, here is the therapy, here is the art, and here is the uh, medicinal, and here is the culinary. Uh, These traditions have generally Amerindian populations have shamanism is really central to their system, their worldview, their cosmology. And uh, it's a means of transmission of culture, of teaching, 
younger generations and of passing on songs and knowledge about how, how society works, of establishing kinship relationships. A lot of these societies don't have a state like we do and don't organize things around, uh, uh, you know, having a centralized state and different individuals, but rather have kinship relationships that organize and are central to the society. So what has become famous is the veladas, and uh, the veladas are the rituals that the Mazatec carried that have had a lot of Christian influence and uh, still remain and exist in the Sierra. I had the privilege to partake a few times. I lived and worked eight years in Mexico and have visited Wautla. And so, uh, you know, it's I can't say exactly. It's very related to healing, but it's also related to divination and to strengthening ties between kinship and community and so forth. I wanted to ask you a little bit about how psilocybin is used. They're saying that it can help PTSD and all of these different, uh, and, and depression and all of that. And can you explain to us just, just, just at the basic scientific level of how that helps? Yeah, I, you know, I'm not s- such an expert on the science of it. Perhaps you can talk about, you know, uh, with scientists, uh, that will give you more concrete explanations. What I know is that there has been a huge research on treating uh, depression with psilocybin. So there is this big trend of big companies that are doing clinical trials uh, to examine psilocybin's potential for treating depression. And also uh, there has been one research, this I know a little bit better, because when the, the PI, he is part of our team, Dr. Brian Anderson, is part of Chakruna's board, has uh, looked at the effects of psilocybin on group therapy to treat uh, older gay men's demoralization. So uh, here in the Bay Area, there's a big legacy of the whole HIV AIDS uh, epidemic and, you know, a few survivors of that time and a lot of um, gay men, older gay men that have been deeply traumatized by by losing a lot of family members and a lot of friends. And they recently conducted an experiment which was giving uh, psilocybin to people in group therapy. I mean, not in group therapy alone, but then after having group sessions to integrate and discuss. And they have found uh, a lot of potential healing effects of this. And this research has been uh, just uh, recently published. And there's a lot of scientific research also trying to look into the properties of other molecules uh, associated to the main one, to psilocybin, uh, and a lot of different potentials for, for healing. This is also interesting because from a more traditional perspective, these things are not just, you know, one substance that has one property that heals one disease. But as I was saying, it's a more healing is a more holistic endeavor that talks about the dimension of uh, healing uh, oneself, but also relationships between us and other people. So the, 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 the health community, the community of the collective, and also relationship to the invisible world, to the world of ancestors, to the world between beyond us, to the world of the dead, to the world that we don't normally see. So healing is associated traditionally with this imbalance on different categories and levels mm-hmm. of one's own health, but 
relationship to to the community and also to the cosmos or to the invisible dimensions of reality. And for us, when we translate this into clinical trials, it's more like isolating one substance to treat one disease. But it's a bit funny because they are good for many things, the substances. Mm -hmm. They're not just for one thing. So that's kind of part of the paradox or the challenge of studying in a lab uh, the substances that are used traditionally. Or at least that's how I see it as an anthropologist. Yeah, you're not going to find that on a prescription bottle. Like, we'll help you communicate with your loved ones <laughs> while being in touch with yourself and your ancestors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a beautiful, uh, really, description of, of what this plant can do. Uh, as far as uh, the word microdosing, that has been a big buzzword, I feel like, for the past five, if not more, years. Um, we see it a lot. We hear it a lot. And it... it what microdosing is, it involves regularly consuming small, sub-perceptible amounts of psychedelic substances. Um, mushrooms are really popular within the microdosing world. What is your perspective on microdosing and now that it's become more mainstream? Yeah, that's a bit delicate because I don't want to be like somebody that is, you know, negative or anything, but it's, I'm not such a fan and it's really not my thing, let's say. So I am an anthropologist that have been studying traditional uses and shamanism, ritual religion, indigenous people, ceremony. And, uh, you know, this kind of development, contemporary, is not something that has much caught my attention. And I am concerned with the ways in which the substances can be instrumentalized and vulgarized and banalized by us in our eternal consumerist hunger for novelty and for quick fixes and quick solutions. And especially this whole trend to like become a better business person or more active in your job or, you know, perform higher and the latest Silicon Valley fashion or trend. And so it has been appropriated by this kind of fast culture there's a lot of also masculinity kind of bro energy and like you know, all of this that is really not my thing however i don't want to discard that i i do think that microdosing has helped people and there's a lot of anecdotal reports of people microdosing and finding some kind of uh, support existential support and healing and um satisfaction. I think we need to do more scientific research about it. We have published an article in Chikruna that suggests us that constant microdosing could have a a negative effect on your heart. Uh, there, There aren't many voices saying this, and there's not a lot of real research yet to 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 know what what's been the case with microdose so i think we have to keep an open mind and we have to keep curious and we also have to keep honest and accountable and we have to 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 look at our communities and 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 really try to see if we're trying to find quick fixes and empty solutions or reproduce our traditional extractivist aggressive individualistic capitalistic, consumeristic techniques, or whether we're trying really to find alternative meaning forms of healing uh, and and keep keep a, a curious and sincere, accountable look at all of this. 
you study shamanism and I'm wondering how, um, if you can let us know what the shamans and those people who use it, uh, have used it for its original purpose, feel about the modern day person microdosing and what is their take on it? I don't know if we can say what the, the Mazatec think about microdosing. Uh, we're trying to promote this conference, Sacred Plants in the Americas, where we're trying to host a conversation about Mazatec perspectives on the globalization of uh, the use of mushrooms. Uh, I don't know exactly what would be the particular view uh, on in microdosing itself. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of discussion that, uh, the consequences of all of the attention that Gordon Wasson brought to Alpla and then brought these practices back to the U.S. and how it spread and created a lot of tourism in, in Wautla and a lot of inequalities and backlashes. And there's been a lot of discussion on how the mushrooms are even disappearing and hard to find these days and how Maria Sabina uh, grew, you know, old and poor and in many ways not... Uh, regarded as despite the fact of becoming this global icon of wisdom and peace and love and knowledge, she herself was not uh, really uplifted, let's say. So there's many different angles. And, uh, you know, there's also not just one Mazatec view, there's different Mazatec views. Uh, I don't know. I think that we, we still need to promote more the inclusion of these voices into our conferences and our publications and our, you know, uh, circles and, and, and discussions. I don't think a lot of effort have, has been done in this regard. And at the Chukruna Institute for Psychedelic Plant Medicines, we're trying to exactly do this kind of work. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back in just a minute. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. It's time to get more in 2024. I know for me, one of my goals is to feel really strong this year. And honestly, so far, so good because that's where 310 Nutrition comes in. It's helping me and our listeners in the new year with protein and super rich food products with so many options and flavors. Right now I have the chocolate bliss and caramel sundae and they are both so (laughs) delicious. I have to hide them from my husband so that he doesn't steal them too. They're a triplex protein blend, plant-based proteins that include pea, brown rice, and pumpkin that leave me feeling full. 310 Nutrition also has a hydrate electrolyte drink mix My favorite is the peach mango flavor. So not only am I hydrating and drinking water, I have an electrolyte blend, vitamin blend, and it's sugar-free. With one stick of hydrate mix into 16 ounces of water, and it can provide the same amount of hydration equal to drinking two to three bottles of water. Thank you. This way I can keep my resolution, keep feeling strong, have greater focus, feel refreshed, and maintain my hydration without having to drink as much. One of my favorite refreshing water enhancers they have is the lemonade flavor. It gives me energy. This one's also sugar-free. It's used with real lemons and it's pH balanced. And this also offers the same hydration as two to three bottles of water. Right now, 310 is celebrating a new year of goals with code CHALLENGED and giving our listeners 50% off up to $100 for your first order. With so many sample packs, new products, it's really fun and easy to put together an order or start a subscription on products that you know you'll use and will help you keep your resolution. So go to 310nutrition.com and use the code CHALLENGED right now for 50% up to $100 for your first order. That's 310-nutrition.com and use code CHALLENGED. It's all the good stuff your body needs in flavors you crave. So be healthier effortlessly. This leads right into the next part of our conversation, specifically on ayahuasca, which you've studied a lot um, in your career. Ayahuasca has also become very commercially popular. We all referenced uh, Chelsea Handler went to Peru and took ayahuasca in her docuseries, Chelsea Does. A whole episode was dedicated to it. There was even an episode of a show called Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce, where uh, a few of the characters took place, took ayahuasca at someone's house in Los Angeles. Uh, It's become so commercialized. Can we first start what the roots of ayahuasca and taking ayahuasca are for our listeners who've never heard of it before? Yeah, ayahuasca is made generally of a vine and uh, a leaf of a shrub. So the ayahuasca vine, Banisteriopsis caapi, and the the shrub is uh, chacruna, the leaf that is used and combined and cooked and boiled uh, for many hours. Uh, it's used traditionally by uh, indigenous uh, people of the Americas or Amerindians, especially all the Amazon. So Brazil, Peru, Colombia, Ecuador, Bolivia, the countries that have the Amazon. Uh, I am Brazilian and I have uh, done a lot of my research and my career around studying ayahuasca and I've been maybe 40 times to the Amazon. It's really been a passion of mine. And again, ayahuasca is used 
traditionally in multiple formats. So you have one kinds of rituals that is more for healing or for divination or for even creating uh, territory, establishing territory and uh, ethnic identity. And again, it's, it's, it's a wide and spread uh, multiple different ways to use ayahuasca. It has also been spread uh, with colonization, you know, with the arrival of the Spaniards and the, the, the Portuguese. It has um, spread to non-indigenous people, so to, to riverine peoples that created different also kinds of rituals, mestizo kind of rituals. Uh, this modality that is more popular nowadays is called vegetalismo, which is a kind of pan-indigenous system that combines traditions from different ethnicities uh, together with some Christian iconography and some European esotericism and has created this healing system that has also spread back to indigenous people and gone back into the forest and also got mixed in with these more traditional modalities. And then another big branch of the ayahuasca movement is the Brazilian ayahuasca churches, which maybe you all have heard about, Santo Daime. No, no please explain. Yeah, so you have the Santo Daime and the Union do Vegetal. They were born in Brazil in like the 30s and the 50s in the Amazon, in little towns of the Amazon. Uh, you know, back back in the 30s, 50s, is very small and rural, uh, but kind of city already. Uh, but city, a lot of influence of rubber tappers, and they created this mixed system that inherits a lot from indigenous people, but also combined with more Christian elements, with Christianity, but also a kind of traditional form of Christianity that is like a lot of parties and celebrations to the saints. And so not like the more orthodox, you know, uh, right. Catholicism. And, and also with Afro-Brazilian religions that have a lot of influence because Brazil has a lot of, maybe almost half of the population is black. And so there's a lot of influence and created this dynamic rituals. I was a member of the Santo Daime uh, for for 10 years and I kind of know all the hymns still. Uh, and it's, it's a very beautiful ritual uh, that you, you sing and you dance for many hours. You also have concentration rituals. So the Brazilian ayahuasca religious, they, they export, they expanded uh, and were, uh, you know, imported abroad. So like the, you know, the, the old world brought Christianity to the Americas, but the Americas exported a kind of weird mix of Christianity with some indigenous religiosity and brew back to the to the states and to Europe. And in the United States, you have branches of the UDV and the Santo Daime that have legal recognition. People go to church and and celebrate like as um, but but they also take ayahuasca at the same time. Is that? what you're saying yeah the mass let's say the ritual the service is with ayahuasca so okay, you, got it. you have you don't have a bible but you have the hymns uh-huh. are the songs the udv has a different kind of ritual but it's also very based on on songs and on storytelling they have a level of different higher hierarchies they have a lot of influence of like Rosa Cruz, Masonian kind of uh, sensibility and have a more kind of private hierarchical structure 
they are more discrete and also more, let's say, organized and uh, structured. Then the centodyme is a bit more fluid with different branches and different combinations. But they're both, you know, similar in many ways, and they have, uh, they have their centers. I have also taken a lot of ayahuasca in the U.S. with these groups. The center of the UDV is in Santa Fe, and they're also growing the vine in Hawaii. In Hawaii, the ayahuasca vine grows very strongly and dynamically, and they cook ayahuasca. And so you have a generation of ayahuasca American leaders that haven't really, you know, they were not Brazilian. They learned with the Brazilians, but they are already forming their own leadership, uh, both for the UDV and the Santo Daime. And then you have all the sh shamanic circles uh, and have a million different variations, also combinations with all kinds of things, with all kinds of therapies or yoga or mantra or musicians or, uh, you know, different kinds of urban religiosities and different kind of ayahuasca circles. And I think that L.A. and New York are for sure, L.A., New York, the Bay Area are kind of hubs of this movement. And so there's dozens of circles happening every weekend. I mean, pre-COVID. Now, you mentioned taking ayahuasca with the UVD or the Santodani, right? Which, uh, is, is there a difference between taking it when you are, uh, is worshipping a correct word or something of that sort? And then have you also taken it rec recreationally? And is there a difference between the two as, as far as experiences? Yeah, I don't like to take ayahuasca recreationally, personally. Uh, I, for me, ayahuasca is deeply sacred. It's really my spiritual path. And I have deep respect and reverence uh, for ayahuasca and consider myself, you know, a soldier of the army, of the queen of the forest in defense against ignorance, prejudice, stupidity, and, uh, you know, all the alienated views that exist around these traditions. I've devoted a lot of my life and career to studying and honoring and celebrating the Amazon indigenous people and the roots of ayahuasca. And so I, it's not for me like a hobby or something that I take, you know, to go to the movies or to party. Although I wouldn't say that I think that people that do that should be criminalized because I am anti-prohibitionist. So I'm against any kind of criminalization. But yeah, in terms of my, my personal choices, uh, I prefer to take it as a spiritual thing in a community with a collective and, you know, some people that have experience. It's very important to take these things with people that are really initiated because they are very strong and they can really, really change your mind. And some people say that once you, 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 you transverse certain, you know, doors in the invisible worlds and then there is no coming back because you just really see reality and learn things in a different way. So it must be done with a lot of care, intention, proper setting. What is the process of taking ayahuasca like for any listener that knows nothing about it? As far as consuming it and then the process of how long it usually lasts and um, some of the physical and emotional experiences you might have while on ayahuasca. You can, uh, you, ayahuasca can maybe take let's say some the majority of contexts demand some kind of preparation, you know, some kinds of diets, or at least on the same day, some attention to what you consume. And also just, uh, you know, some refraining from sexual intercourse or 
just being in environments that are toxic or very aggressive and ask people to be in a kind of preparation towards receiving the brew that can have a very strong taste. It's very bitter and very unique and can be really rough and can also cause, you know, effects that are strong like nausea, diarrhea, vomiting. And uh, you sit in the ceremony and one dose maybe will take from four to six hours and depending the kind of ritual it will take one dose or more and go more or less time. And it's usually in in the dark, but not all traditions are in the dark. And people, uh, it's kind of a universal thing of ayahuasca music. Although the UDV plays recorded music, but the great majority of, they also have songs. The great majority of context is, is, is music. It's, the music is very fundamental, fundamental in the ritual. Uh, and people have their own experience and share, you know, go, go, go to, to these remote places of, of the universe and of themselves and generally report a lot of teaching and healing and learning uh, and love and a lot of good things. Uh, one of those things that even when it's bad, it's good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a beautiful path and it's, been very grateful to 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 have it in my life but i also don't think it's for everybody so there's that i i do want to make sure that we highlight the fact that uh for anyone who wanted to try ayahuasca that you should really do your research of who you're taking the ayahuasca from that there are maybe you know inauthentic shamans or someone who's just solely appropriating the culture have you seen this come up a lot more recently in the rise of popularity of ayahuasca yes unfortunately unfortunately yes you know the the way i like to say it is like it's any kind of phenomena you're always going to have a few rotten apples in there and you're always going to have a few charlatans and opportunistic people together with the whole. So it's important not to let those be the representatives of ayahuasca. And it's important to, to find them and call them out, but they, they really don't represent the whole of this movement. Yeah. There's a lot of opportunistic people, people that want to make money easily or that uh, just, you know, are on the last trend and yeah. a lot of naivete as well. A lot of when you drink ayahuasca, you may have gotten that feeling of this kind of illumination or vision or clarity of truth, a kind of messianic, you know, I am the one chosen kind of thing. A lot of us go through that, this period that you are enchanted and fascinated and you think you found it and you nailed it and that's it. And you're the one. Uh, even to a point that we wanted to make a t-shirt in Chukruna called Ayahuasca told me because I, you know, a lot of people, <laughs> Ayahuasca told me this. Well, yeah, I told a lot of people, a lot of people. Uh, so we encourage people to do research, as you say. Yeah. And also to um, to consider this as a, as a, a path. So it's not a one thing kind of solution. Yeah. Although some people have one experience and that's fine for them and that's okay too. Uh, but it's something that demands, it's like an art. It's like, you know, like, like cooking or playing an instrument. It takes time to refine, to learn. And the more you do it, the better you get at it. 
And you create this relationship with, with ayahuasca, like a friend, like an ally, like a family member. I notice even just researching uh, ayahuasca vacations, essentially, that there's a plethora of websites you can go to that have these tour packages that will have you on a two week schedule um, with a shaman. And the whole website is filled with Instagram worthy photos and video diaries of their experiences. Do you feel that that is still an appropriate form or marketing of ayahuasca for people to actually enjoy it? I mean, there was a woman who was saying that she was so excited to try ayahuasca because she wanted the answers to uh, her purpose in life and her love life and career questions. hearing about the roots of ayahuasca in traditional shaman practices that those don't really add up to be the same thing or do you think that that's fine that that's just her why of why she wanted to try ayahuasca i like to give more generic answers i mean there's so many angles and uh within my own story like i i drank ayahuasca the first time in 1996 Things have changed so much and I don't even know what I think anymore because whatever we think, it's happening, you know. As we speak right now, there's dozens of liters of ayahuasca being broiled in the Amazon to be exported all over the U.S., the Europe, and same in Hawaii. There's a lot of people growing ayahuasca uh, up parts as well, Puerto Rico, a bit of Florida. And so there's a huge hunger and a huge interest. It's like a, a sea full of hungry fish. You know, people are there. They want it. And so at the Chukruna Institute, we're trying to do harm reduction. And our position is ayahuasca, you know, the genie is out of the bottle. It expanded. It went beyond the Amazon. It's a fact. It's on every TV show. It's on the mainstream. Dumb American Hollywood celebrity, it's everywhere, whether we want it or not, whether we like it or not. So how can we try to make this movement more mindful, less harmful, more Mm. reciprocal to indigenous people? And so we have been engaged in initiatives to raise awareness. We We have promoted a series of videos on ayahuasca legal harm reduction, how should you keep track of your sacrament and how do you keep it? How you you should, you know, have your records if authorities look for you. How do you form a nonprofit or a 501c3? And we have produced materials on best practices and safety. And we have this document called the commodification of ayahuasca. How can you how can we do better? Where we're, we're trying to raise awareness around. Where is this ayahuasca that you're consuming coming from? Uh, Do these groups have any program of reciprocity towards the local communities? Do they plant ayahuasca or not? Are they paying the shamans uh, fairly? Uh, Are the shamans and the locals recognized, named by name, by their territory, their culture, or are they just tokens or peers as, you know, chauffeurs or maids of gringo sites, uh, you know, that are invisibilizing these indigenous voices. So we're trying to create, and also we have a work with underground communities trying to promote best practices. How, how can we keep each other accountable? What do we do with people that are problematic? How do we hold this in high standards? Uh, so I think those are the kinds of public questions and uh, public policies that we need to be thinking and you know what difference it makes if i'm saying this woman is 
shallow or superficial in her question or her Instagram post, it doesn't really help. Like, we have to think of this on wider, more institutional uh, public health and drug reform policies. That's what we're trying to do in Chikrina. We also published this resource about raising awareness around sexual abuse because there has been a lot of transgressions, you know. People drink ayahuasca, they become vulnerable, and there's also a lot of predators, and ayahuasca can uh, make people feel more, you know, aphrodisiac or open in ways. There's a lot of romanticization, idealization around the shamans. So we created this uh, document around this. We also hold a lot of circles with women. Uh, and I think, you know, it's it's like everything you have to uh, to create policies to enhance the, the positive and, and reduce risks. And because this is in a such gray area and because of stigma and because of taboo and, and lack of any institutional support, it's hard to create uh, systems that are really effective. So it's up to us as communities to build those networks and to enhance the local cultural, informal means of control that already exist and are in place. And so I think that in the end, considering how strong ayahuasca is and how it can be potentially, you know, have negative effects on certain individuals, especially if they have certain kinds of mental health issues or predispositions, I think the, the expansion of ayahuasca is incredibly beneficial considering all of that. Because what is fascinating about ayahuasca is that it expands, but always with some kind of ritual and community. And that's really interesting. How can this migrate from remote areas to the Amazon, to the hipster downtown of LA, <laughs> and still hold all those patterns and have yeah. people singing maybe in English and having maybe medical doctors doing screenings and not shamans, but there, is, there are forms of control in place. And that's that's a really interesting culturally and delicious topic for an anthropologist. You put that so lovely. Um, now, before we move, move on to peyote, because I do want to ask you about that, you had mentioned something about Santa Fe being a hub, and I'm physically in Santa Fe right now. So is there anything that I need to go see or go do or try? Well, I think Santa Fe is a kind of hub for different kinds of spiritualities, and there's a lot of indigenous presence as well. Right. What I mentioned is that the UDV main church started in Santa Fe. And so they went all the way until the Supreme Court uh, and then had this huge legal battle and then had years and years of fights with the DEA. And also the, their main church is located in this kind of like wealthy, privileged, kind of isolated neighborhood. And they got a lot of opposition of the neighbors really insane opposition to be honest things like oh you know if you drink ayahuasca then you when you pee you're gonna have dmt affect the subterranean waters and <laughs> our kids are gonna drink the water and become poisoned like people have treated ayahuasca as some kind of toxic waste you know like if you were dealing with some high nuclear you know dangerous thing and so uh this church the the let's say the capital in a way of ayahuasca in the U, in the UDV branch has been in Santa Fe, but there's also all all kinds of circles ayahuasca circles in Santa Fe. A lot of people from Peru. I think probably one of the oldest lineages that migrated from Peru to Santa Fe. But yeah, 
I can I can give you the gold because then it's not fun for you. So I'll leave it like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, moving on to our last psychedelic drug, we wanted to ask you about um, peyote. What is the difference between uh, how is peyote consumed? What is what are the effects on the body, and how is it ritualistically performed? A peyote is a cactus that it grows in the desert mainly, and it's endogenous to Mexico and to the south of the U.S. Uh, in Texas, there's the famous area of the peyote gardens where peyote grows naturally, endemically. And, you know, Mexico is the country with the strongest flora and fauna of psychedelic substances in the world. And it has over like 600 species of cacti. So the world of cactus in Mexico is something truly wonderful. I have lived in the semi-desert in this town of Aguas Calientes for a few years, where I started my passion about this topic by cultivating a cactus garden. It was one of the more enriching experiences I ever had. Uh, I'm also grateful because it's not so hard to take care of cactus. <laughs> they, are very, <laughs> they, they are very resistant. And what's really interesting about peyote is that the masculine is kind of the, it's, it's, it's the protective effect, how the, the cactus defends itself. So there's not a lot of species that use that bite and eat peyote because it's so bitter, except the humans, they go and they 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 eat it. So it, peyote is a fragile, vulnerable species that has been classified under different uh, legislations as threatened. And it's listed both in, in Mexico and in, in the U.S. in different levels of like vulnerability. And one full peyote may take maybe 10 years or 30 years to grow. And there is a big rush uh, in the peyote use as well, but not as much as ayahuasca, but it's, it's rough to ingest it. And it's different. It's also a schedule one drug or, you know, so-called hallucinogen or psychedelic, but it's a different kind of, what does schedule one mean? Sorry to interrupt. What does that mean? the, The schedule of prohibition. So that would be the substances that have allegedly, according to the authorities, no medical use and potential of abuse which is kind mm. of really dumb because it's not true. And it's also just very circular. Like you can't really research those or consume those because they are these dangerous substances. So you have to go do this big loop and, ex- you know, state of exception to research it, to then prove it that there is right. medical yeah. use. It's a kind of patch 22 mm-hmm. to start off with. Uh, but that's changing. It's also sad the catch twenty two of the fact that referencing what you were saying that the cacti of uh, is it called a peyote? I don't know if it's called a peyote cactus, but the flowers, the plant, the plant um, is becoming endangered due to farming practices, silver mining. But because um, I'm assuming as a federal under the federal one law of this plant being a narcotic, that no one's really doing anything to protect these cacti correct no there are some initiatives they are injured yes it's a problem yes people are upset about it yes but there are as a matter of fact we are launching a documentary called the peyote files it's a very modest in-house production which is the adventure of me going to alpine texas and interviewing dr martin terry who's perhaps the u.s leading cactologist or conservationist researcher and he is the head of the cactus conservation institute 
Uh, and he has been together with Keeper Trout and his team studying peyote for maybe 25 years or more and producing scientific literature. They, they do longitudinal studies and observe, you know, like if you harvest peyote, it, a pups come, come and is, is born out of it. And how strong is the masculine in there? And how long does it take to grow again? And how many of these die? And doing this kind of thing. So Martin Terry has been involved in promoting conservation and cultivation of peyote for many years. Has also, his work has influenced the Native American church. There's also another project called Indigenous Peyote Conservation Initiative that is funded by uh, the River Sticks Foundation that has a, a bunch of Native American churches and alliance between different churches with the money of philanthropists from the psychedelic field. Create, they bought a big land in South Texas uh, and are trying to, to, to create a project of conservation. The Comanche also have a project of peyote uh, greenhouses and they have also this uh, related to that is the SIA conservation project is, is another initiative that they, they breed eagles. So the Comanche have been breeding artificial eagles for uh, the first people that bred these artificial eagles and they, they provide the feathers of eagles for all the Native American federally recognized tribes in the U.S. Uh, so breed eagles, get eagles in, the, in nature, and when they are harmed, and uh, heal them, put them back in nature, uh, create, uh, breed more eagles, and uh, use these feathers for uh, ritual use. Is a parallel with peyote. It's like a species that has conservation dimensions and drug policy or other kind of restrictions towards the consumption that can have an exemption for religious and ritual uses. So there are initiatives uh, to protect peyote. There's also south of the border, the Wisharika or Wichal people have also their own conservation projects. But yeah, in general, these are very modest efforts, very unknown, underfunded, and could uh, receive much more support and attention. And also there's you know different communities that use peyote on different kinds of rituals and a lot of controversies around all of this. Well, I think the through line amongst this entire conversation, whether it's mushrooms or ayahuasca or peyote, is that they're all rooted in therapeutic and spiritual experiences. And how do you experience these plants while also being respectful of these cultures and what the, the medicinal uses of these plants are rooted in? How can you do it in a respectful way that isn't completely appropriating a culture? Yeah, there's also this question is complex because I think that the answer from like a Brazilian or more South American perspective or a Mexican one is quite different than the American answer. Because I think here in the U.S., this whole discussion about identity politics and cultural appropriation is much stronger and it's also just a, you know different historical context. So, for example, ayahuasca is not criminalized for non-indigenous people in South America, like peyote is in the U.S. So you have a big ayahuasca culture of dozens and dozens of indigenous groups, but also a lot of mestizo, riverine, uh, Amazonian uses, and the ayahuasca churches of Brazil that I said that you know traveled abroad. 
so I think in Brazil and and perhaps among followers in the U.S., this question whether it's legitimate or not to use ayahuasca in other contexts is less strong than the question of peyote here. But there has been also indigenous groups that have expressed concerns about cultural appropriation and rejection of the use by non-indigenous people. And in Mexico, the, the scene of peyote is also very diversified because you have, let's say, the four main groups that use ayahuasca, that use peyote are the Wixarica or Wichol, the Raramari or Tarahumara, Tepe ones, uh, and I forgot the, the other one now, that, that use peyote traditionally. But you also have uh, like mestizo uses and kind of hybrid teepees. So the teepees from the Native American church were also exported to Mexico and people do teepees uh, and sit in ceremony, but using like old songs or Mexican traditions, a lot of hybrid modalities. There's, I was doing this research with a friend and we mapped at least like 30 circles of these different uses. And uh, also the, the more new age contemporary, like what, what people call the Camino Rojo in Mexico is this hybrid Mexican transnational modality that combines different plants and different traditions. So there's a lot of, um, you know, different perspectives in the U.S. You have the Native American church and you have the federally recognized groups. Then you have only state recognized groups, but you also have kind of other peyote circles that are not either of those. And so depending on where you stand on this net, there's a different perspective. In our conferences, we have seen that. We, we have host conferences that hold this multiplicity of views. So some people will be entirely against non-Indigenous people using these substances altogether. And others are think that it's, you know, it's not fair that federally recognized tribes can, but state recognized cannot because the policies to recognize indigenous people are also, are also, which one is federal or not, have, have been object of criticism. And there's other people that claim that there's uses of, you know, traditional Western non-indigenous uses for at least 500 years. Uh, so it's very contentious. And there's not one simple answer. I think, again, the most important thing is that we have conversations where these different perspectives sit on the table and talk to each other. And that's what we have been focused in trying to do in the Chikrina Institute. And I really would like to, to suggest everybody to visit our site and take a look in the work we're doing. Can you give us the site so we can, our listeners can go to it? Yeah, the site is chakruna.net. So C-H-A-R-U na.net and we also have I, I recommend people follow us on our social media and join our newsletter we also have a membership program that is going super nice uh, so we are a bunch of Brazilians and Mexicans but we have also a lot of friends here and have had a lot of um, support I feel very lucky and very blessed and also married to an American woman. My wife and partner in all of this is Clancy Kavner, and we're the leaders of this institute. And we're trying to celebrate 
queer people, indigenous people, people of color, women, voices from the global south, anthropology, social sciences, humanity, social justice. That's the take of Chukruna, in promoting inclusion, diversity, equity, reciprocity in psychedelic plant medicines, creating a bridge between the global south, the world of indigenous people, ceremony, tradition, ritual, religion, and the emerging world of psychedelic assisted therapy and psychedelic science, but trying to rewrite the narratives of mainstream psychedelic science to include these other voices. So we are committed to public education. I have had the fortune of never having a job outside psychedelics in my entire life. And so if you're listening and you, you're curious and you like the topic, I encourage you to go for it. You can have a career path and a groovy lifestyle. It's hard. There's not a lot of fund funding. And, you know, there's a lot of opportunistic uh, people coming around. Uh, but I personally feel deep gratitude, deep gratitude for being able to serve the plants, serve this cause, and also especially to be able to live in the United States, even if this is a madhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's wonderful things happening here. And I'm so grateful for the social justice movement that really influenced everything we're doing with Chakrina. So beautifully put. And we'll make sure all of that information is in our show notes. Um, Dr. B. Labache, thank you so much for sitting down with us. We are honored to have this conversation and to keep this movement going. Thank you very much. And thank you for your good work, too. So, Candace, when are we going to Oregon? <laughs> You don't want to come um, with me. We're gonna we're gonna buy some magic mushrooms and take well, all your advice. I mean, you're the one hanging out um, in uh, Santa Fe right now, so <laughs> just you know finding that peyote to smoke. Um, no, this was really. I feel like I learned a lot. I, I found this really fascinating, and especially it makes me want to learn more about uh, the rituals in which the using of these plants are rooted in, mm-hmm. and. Um, specifically for healing purposes and spiritual uses. I I found that part of the conversation uh, really, really fascinating. Right. I think there was a a respect level that she had for not only the drug itself and the plant, but also, you're right, the rituals that come along with it. And um, it seems like we learned a lot about, you know, how to maybe take that respect and use it in today's practices. You know, a lot of people are microdosing and all of that and that that the respect issue might be missing. I'm interested in it. I'm fascinated by it. I also read that in Amsterdam, they have microdose yoga classes and we didn't get a chance to talk to her about that. I know she's not huge on microdosing, but something like that might be an interesting way to sort of dive in or dip our toes into um, this. I don't know. I don't know if I'm ever going to try it or not. We'll see, but it's, it's really fascinating and interesting. And I thought she had such a fantastic perspective. Yeah, I liked that, you know, she was open. She didn't want to say that anyone's exploration within any of the medicinal properties of these plants and drugs were necessarily wrong. Um, But I like that she pointed out that, I mean, it's so in such like typical American way that a lot of the properties and 
the helpful properties of these drugs are being marketed as like, do better at work, be more productive, right. <laughs> you know, as opposed to getting in touch with your inner self and connecting to your ancestors and appreciating the earth and, you know, hearing answers from the universe on like what you need to better yourself as a human. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, so I really liked that perspective because it is we're so like, how can we use this to just it's like so so rooted in productivity and mm. you know hopefully that's what we're also learning coming off of a year like 2020 is you know is finding that balance again on what is helpful and healthy for ourselves as opposed to just what all the things that need to get done and like you know kind of using our time only for productivity and 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 getting to know ourselves again which is what a lot of these i think plants are, are rooted in is like community and also community within the inner self and your own soul absolutely i love the way you put that um well we hope you Thanks. guys learned <laughs> we hope you guys learned and loved this episode and found it fascinating like we did we have another great episode coming up next week we'll see you then Directionally Challenged is a production of Pineapple Productions. Producer, Melissa DeMonts. Edited by Katrina Henning. Post-production sound by Chris Henry. Music by Joe King. And advertising partnership with Acast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.